Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, please be seated. Is this the microphone working here? Can you hear me back there? All right, I'm going to try it out in the parking lot. I'm going to go down to the Waffle House. Okay, so just wait. Good morning. Good How'd you like that reading from Hebrews? Yeah, boy. But you know the thing is about readings like that, right? Those letters. Um, these are these are messages to people who are suffering. These, these are messages to the people of God who are seeking to be the people of God, and things are hard. Things are hard. We have the heroes of the faith. We have these wonderful stories of imperfect people who God used to do great things. Remember that Moses was a murderer, and David was an adulterer, and Samson was kind of just a general jerk. <laughs> right? And the prophets got angry about things, right? And they're imperfect people that God used to do God's work. And in that seeking to be the people of God, to be people of compassion, mercy, healing, people who seek to be what God would have us be, that sometimes that can be a really hard thing because the world doesn't always receive and so we know from this letter to the Hebrews that things must have been really hard, and the writer is writing to a community to remind them of those who persevered in the faith. Those who persevered through all kinds of hardship. Those who were flogged and beaten and put in chains and imprisoned and run through with swords and put on stakes and set on fire like candles and sawn in half. Sign me up. <laughs> Sign me up. Because it can be hard, right? It can be hard. It can be hard to be loving to each other. It can be hard to be loving to ourselves. It can be downright hard to be the people of God and to be faithful and to practice mercy and kindness and forgiveness. It, it can be really hard for us to do that. And so this letter to the Hebrews is reminding us of those who are the saints of the church who have gone before us, some of them that we know, but the truth is most of them we don't know. We don't know. But we're given this encouragement that there is a group of people that you cannot see who are cheering you on. Imagine yourself inside a large coliseum. People are packed to the rafters. And you're trying to be that child of God, that servant of God, that, that, that messenger of the gospel, and you're trying to be compassionate and loving and, and all this, and, and things are just hard. They're just hard. And there are 110,000 saints cheering you on. So great a cloud of witnesses. People who have gone before us, people that you can't see, but who are alive in the Lord, that are saying, don't give up. Don't give up. I remember Winston Churchill. Right? Most of us know who Winston Churchill is. If you don't, Google it, right? Pull out your phone and Google it. Winston Churchill. He, he gave a number of great speeches. And, and when you're somebody like that, that that does this, you know, people remember phrases from you and, and then myths build up. Okay, and one of the one of the myths that, that, that's been built up around Winston Churchill, they actually took something that was a speech at this the graduation of the preparatory school that he went to, where he went and he talked to the graduating class 
1941, the place where he went to prep school. And somebody took that and kind of distilled the kind of the, the nugget out of what he had to say and, and made it as if he went to Oxford University, where he also graduated from. And this, this is said to be the shortest commencement speech ever. And so you might be thinking, well, Bill, why don't you do that with your homilies? <laughs> yeah, get right to it and go sit down. I might try that sometime. So here's what they say Winston Churchill did, even though this is probably a myth, not true. But you know, myths have truth in them, right? So it said that he was invited to Oxford to give the commencement address. Which is kind of an amazing thing when you think about who Winston Churchill was. He was not the best student. You think somebody that's going to write speeches and, and give kind of motivational speeches would be somebody that had this facility with the English language? He failed eighth grade English. It took him three times to pass. Now, I don't remember any English teachers here. What, what is it about eighth grade English that might be so hard? Oh, <laughs> the semicolon, the downfall of the society. <laughs> Almost pause. What is that? What is that? So yeah, it said that he came. He came to, to Oxford, and, and you know, you've been to graduations. You know what they're like. It's it's the stage and all the dignitaries and everything, and it's it's all the parents and the students out there. And this time, Oxford Burton, it was it was all male. So he's looking at this all male class out there, and and. He, he's going to get up and, and do the, the commencement address. And instead, he, you know, he, he walked with a cane. And so he kind of got up from his seat and, and made his way to the, to the podium and, and leaned his cane against the podium. He had a cigar, right? Winston Churchill, right? That's how you know it's him. He's got the cigar. This way he can still do this kind of thing. So he took his cigar and he, he rested his cigar on the podium and then removed his top hat and very carefully placed it place it on the podium. And this is Winston Churchill. I think people were expecting something great. <clears throat> and so they're all kind of attentive to what he's about to say, and he goes, I have three words for you. It's like E.F. Hutton, remember that? <laughs> What's he going to say? I have three words for you. There's amplification, and with this big voice that he has, never give up. And it just kind of, you know, the, the, the account of this is that that voice kind of rang out and kind of stuck in people's ears and resonated. And, you know, if you're, if you're a real good, if you're real good at this, you know, to kind of allow that to kind of just fill up the space and, and come resting down on everybody and let them, let them embrace it and, and then let some quiet. People go, oh, what's this going to be about? What's this going to be about? Never give up. And it said that he kind of went up on his toes and leaned into the microphone and said, never give up. And with that, he picked up his cigar, put his hat back on, grabbed his cane, and went and sat down. You're going, boy, that'd be great if Bill would do that with a homily. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, never give up. And I think that message, that message from the letter to the Hebrews, about this great cloud of witnesses of those who did great things and those who failed and those who didn't meet with glory but met with death. The message in all of that 
you, the people of God, in all the hardship you face, in your personal struggles, in your family struggles, in your struggle to be a faith community, to be the people of God in the world, never, ever give up. Never give up. That letter writer tells us that these people were faithful, they kept striving, they faced hardship, and you know what? They didn't even come to the promised land. They didn't make it. They didn't make it. He tells us that Jesus has blazed that path, that Jesus is on his throne, Jesus is going to make this right, but it's not going to happen yet. It's not going to happen yet. Don't give up. In our Episcopal Church, we have a calendar of saints. Most of them you've probably never heard of. But they are examples of those people who are now sitting in this stadium, the ones who've been there, done that, they know what it's like, and they know the fruit of the things that they could not see when they were alive. And they're speaking to each of you who are struggling. Don't give up. A woman named Prudence Crandall. Prudence Crandall. You've heard of her? No, you have not heard of her. Okay? You've not heard of Prudence Crandall. She was born in 1803, just a few years ago, in Rhode Island, to a Quaker family. Quakers believe that women should be educated. And so she graduated from the New England Friends School for Women, studied math and Latin and all these things, and was a highly educated woman for her time. Her family moves to Connecticut, Canterbury, Connecticut. Great thing for Episcopalians and, and Anglicans that you're in Canterbury. She's an educated woman, and the, the, the town elite, the aristocratic people in Canterbury, recognize and they have somebody who's an educated woman. Seek her out to establish a school for girls in their community. And so Prudence and a, and, a, and a maid and another woman established a school for the aristocratic white girls of Canterbury, Connecticut. And she opens the school in 1831, and it's lovely. It's lovely. You know, um, the Quakers, Society of Friends, they were in the abolitionist movement. And she had not really been raised with that, but uh, William Lloyd Garrison, famous abolitionist, was producing a, a newspaper, and, and Prudence Crandall got, got some of those newspapers and started thinking about that, about you know, the equality of all people. They're all God's children. And she um, was introduced to a young African-American girl, a child of three blacks in the North, girl named Sarah Harris, and she invited Sarah to join the school. And the town elite did not appreciate that. They pulled their daughters from the school. They harassed her and her remaining students. None of the merchants would do business with her. None of the stage drivers would give them any transportation. Doing everything to make sure that they could ruin this thing. But she would not give up. So they started vandalizing the school, breaking out its windows and doing destruction and terrorizing the remaining students. 
And then the state of Connecticut, because this wasn't working so well. The state of Connecticut passed a law. Because what she ended up doing as she lost her white students, William Lloyd Garrison and others helped her recruit young black women from places like Boston and New York and Philadelphia. And see, now she had this, this integrated school, which in fact is the first integrated school in the United States. Well, Connecticut didn't like this. The, 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 the people in, in, in Canterbury didn't like this, that, that she was still in business. So they got the state to pass a law disallowing the education of African Americans from outside the state. This eventually went to the courts, and it went to the Supreme Court of Connecticut, and the case was dismissed. The charges against her were dropped, but the damage had been done. Too much harassment, too much lack of support, in a mere couple years in existence, that school was gone. She ended up marrying a preacher. Boy, you think she'd had bad enough already. <laughs> she married a preacher. Apparently, it wasn't a very good marriage. He was quite controlling. She outlived him. Good for her. Good for her. And then she moved in with her brother a place called Elk Falls, Kansas. Kansas, in 1877. We were there in 2009 through 13. Imagine what it was like in 1877. Very remote, very remote. And she grieved being there because she was an educated woman and she loved informed conversation, and there she was, out in the middle of Kansas. And that's where she died. That's where she died. There is, a, on one of the interstates near there, it might be I-35, which, which comes close to there. It's, it's outside of Wichita, Kansas. There's a historical marker about her burial place and who she was and what she did. The first integrated school. And it says on there that the litigation of this, of, of arguing for the integration and the equal rights of all people for education, provided the founding litigation for an important case that came up in Topeka, Kansas. Brown versus the Board of Education. <laughs> that outlawed segregated schools. She couldn't have known that. She couldn't see that. That was so far in the future. She didn't make it to that promised land. But she did what she could to move us in that direction. This woman who was exiled from Connecticut to find herself out in a deserted place like Hebrews talks about, people living in holes. <laughs> If you're ever falls, I'm sorry. <laughs> but it's out there. It's out there. Connecticut has an official heroine 
a female hero of their state. Prudence Crandall. And now you know. And now you know. This great cloud of witnesses, people that, that have been through it and are cheering you on, never give up. Joseph de Vuster. You were just talking about it this morning, weren't you, Alvin? <laughs> yeah. Breakfast with them, yes. Yes, it's good. You probably smoked fish. <laughs> Joseph de Vuster was born in 1840 in a small town in Belgium. The youngest of seven kids. His dad was a corn merchant. The youngest of seven kids, the youngest of four brothers. He was supposed to be the one who would inherit the family farm. He was going to be the youngest one, the rest of them gone off to do something else, and he would grow up there. He'd be the one who eventually would take over that. But he didn't do that. He had two sisters and a brother. He became part of a monastic order. The Congregation of the Sacred Hearts of Jesus and Mary. You're probably going to look that up too. And he joined them. They had already become professed members of this, of this order in the Roman Catholic Church, and he followed them into that order. First as a novice, and then as a vowed brother of this congregation. This is a missionary society. Sending people out into the world in all kinds of exotic places to carry the news of the gospel and to love people as God has loved us. They didn't think he was smart enough to be a priest. Not educated enough to do the work. I don't know what they were thinking. <laughs> so he, he, he taught himself. He learned Latin. He learned the things that a priest has to know because he wanted to be a priest. Now his brother, his older brother that was part of this order, he was a priest and his older brother was supposed to be sent on a mission trip to, this sounds great, to Hawaii. <laughs> A missionary to Hawaii when it was still the kingdom of Hawaii. <laughs> yeah, the kingdom of Hawaii. His older brother was going to go. His older brother was a priest, and they were going to send him there to do this kind of work for, for this mission organization. And, and his brother got sick. His brother got sick. His older brother was sick. So, um, so, so he went, Joseph went to the, to the leaders of this, this group and, and, and wouldn't let go of of asking, send me. Send me, send me, send me. Send me, ooh, ooh, send me. Who should we send? Anyone, send me. And they finally said, yeah, you, you go, you go. He was sent to Oahu. This back when it was still the kingdom of Hawaii. And it was while he was there that he was priesthood. And Joseph de Buster is the person that we now know as Father Damien. Father Damien of Molokai. He is the patron saint of Hawaii. He's the patron saint of lepers and outcasts. He is Prudence Crandell's patron saint, because she was an outcast. See, when he went to Hawaii, there was a lot of suffering there among the native populations because all these people coming from east and west were bringing all these diseases that the Hawaiian people had no experience with. And the Hawaiian population was being decimated 
because they didn't have the natural immunity to these things that build up over generations. So they were being decimated by things. And one of the things that was hitting them the worst, that was probably the most frightening thing, was leprosy, what we call Hansen's disease. And so King Kamehameha V passed this law because they didn't understand what leprosy was. They didn't understand that you know most people, like 95% of all the population, is immune to this. But they don't know what caused it. There was no cure for it. They, they passed the law to take anyone who has leprosy or signs of it, and they exiled them. They sent them to this faraway place at the end of a peninsula to a place that was a really hard place to live and to grow food. They exiled them, not, not to punish them. Not to punish them. But it was very, very remote. And they're looking for volunteers. Who wants to go to the leper colony? Now, Joseph, Father Damien, he, he has no better information than anyone else. I mean, there's a risk there. Right? There's a risk. You go to a leper colony, you might get this disease. So there was a practice of sending people who volunteered to go, and you're supposed to be like on a rotation where you go for a little while, then you leave. Father Damien went and stayed. He went and stayed. And he wrote to his brother. He wrote to his brother. I become a leper. I become one of them to bring them to Christ. It said when he first got there, there was no place for him to... He, he rode on a boat with 50 patients, 50 people suffering from leprosy, and he gets there and there's no place for him to stay. He spent his first nights under a tree until he finally had a home. He worked on developing community leadership. They built a church. They built houses. They built all kinds of things and organized that community. He dug graves. He built coffins. He shared his pipe with them. They ate with their hands out of bowls. He shared bowls with them. And he often would dress their wounds, changing their bandages, using his bare hands and not washing them afterwards. After 11 years of living with them, 11 years, he was washing his feet one day. He burned himself because the water that he put his feet in was scalding water. And when he pulled them out, he saw the damage he had done. And that's when he realized he's become one of them. He's become one of them. They say that when he was there and they embrace him, he is now one of us. He's, he's one of us. He's become one of us. And you think about how godly that is, how Christ-like, that God became one of us. That we would know how fully God loves us. That Peter Damien risked his life and gave his life to be one of them. To truly become a leper for the sake of those people who need to know that God loved them too. In 2009, Pope Benedict canonized Father Damien, Saint Damien, Saint Damien. He is a beloved saint in Belgium. He is the 
patron saint of Hawaii and the Catholic Diocese of Honolulu. He is the patron of those people who suffer from this terrible disease. And for anyone who feels like they have been pushed out because they are trying to be the people of God, he is your patron as well. If you go to Washington, D.C., and you go to the Capitol building, there's a place that is the old hall in, in Congress. It's the place where the initial House of Representatives met before they built where they currently meet. It's the old hall in, in, in the House of Representatives in Congress. There are a bunch of statues in there. It's called the National Stat Statuary Hall or, or something like that. And, and each state has two statues of somebody who is important for that state. And one of those for the state of Hawaii is Father Damien. Father Damien. And now you know. And now you know. There are tens of thousands of these people, known and unknown, who struggled, suffered, to be Christ in and to the world. They are cheering you on this day. One day we'll all be in that promised land, but we're not there yet. And these saints of the church are cheering you on and saying to you in your times of hardship, never give up. Never give up.